Good evening. My name is Rishi Verdes, and I'm the director of the Urban Age Project here at the LSE, and I'm part of a small, but talking of others, perfectly formed urban cluster here at the LSE with Richard Sennett, Frank Honkis, Bob Taverner, and many other colleagues. And Saskia Sassen has been a critical member of that group uh, of urbanists um, here at the LSE for a number of years. And it's a really great pleasure, great honor for me to be able to introduce you as part of this uh, series of four lectures uh, on the urban age, <coughs> which has been organized here. Saskia is uh, known to many of you from different uh, angles and different perspectives and different discourses, which uh, cross cut on one central theme, which is a theme which interests us, which in fact is a place, and it's the city. And uh, in her work as a sociologist and economist has probably done more as a researcher uh, and an academic to raise these questions which cut across uh, different themes of what is actually happening to the flows of the economy, the flows of people, and the impact on the places and how they're governed than probably any other academic, certainly, that I have come across. She's coined, just with the title of her books, terms which today are such common currency, such as global city, that someone like me who comes along 15 years after and opening a show at the Tate next week to think of nothing more original but the call it Global Cities. So let me plug myself, all going to see the show at the Tate next week. But it's in honor very much of the research that uh, Saskia has led over the years and the thinking that Saskia has led over the years. She's been a professor here, a centennial professor and professor of sociology at the school at the LSE for a number of years has been nine years at, as Rob Lewis Professor at uh, Chicago, and in fact, later this year, will return to Columbia, where she used to be uh, a professor there for a number of years, both as the uh, professor of sociology, but even more intriguingly, part of a group, a core group, and a very eminent group of uh, people and thinkers called the Committee on Global Thought, where uh, she will develop I think, new strands in her thinking, which relate not just to immigration, uh, world economy, and the impacts on cities, but some of the things she's going to, as she says tonight, share with you as new an experiment of new thinking. We're lucky to be able to do that on of the impacts of uh, global climate change on the economy of cities around the world. So, Saskia has written extensively. Her most uh, current book is Territory, Authority, and Rights, but the global city, which is an absolute canon of uh, understanding of what cities are about, was written in 91, and there are so many in between that I'm not even going to start there. But let me perhaps turn it, before I pass on to her, to speak to a slightly more personal level, because together with a not-disconnected figure in the front row, Richard Senate, uh, we have grown to become close friends in this experiment of creating the cities program, which links, as you've heard me say, uh, last week when I was introducing Jerry Crew, the physical to the social. And I think uh, Saskia's work has done that at a wider scale, perhaps, than many of the, much of the work we've been doing, which looks at the tissue and the fabric of cities. But this doesn't mean that for a moment she doesn't engage with that. Uh, as a friend and fellow traveler of the Urban Age, which is a series of conferences around the world, sponsored by the Herrhausen Society of the Deutsche Bank and organized by the LSE, We've gone all together, and Saskia, you've been there at each one of these, and it's extraordinary. You sit in a bus or walk down the street in Johannesburg, 
And you are asked a seemingly naive question, like, Ricky, who are those people? What's happening over there? And within half an hour, you have a new theory of pan-African transnational impact on the global economy and why we have a city with a hole at the heart of it. So what do you mean by that? And then another theory emerges. So there's a curiosity, uh, a pleasure, an enjoyment, uh, and uh, an ability to... to, Well, well, we'll see how we we get there. But I I think what is interesting for us tonight is that she's decided to focus on an issue which is becoming increasingly significant to all of us. Uh, which is the impact of global warming on cities. And as she's put a little bit of a health warning, as you have mentioned to me, that this is an experiment in new ideas, developing, uh, not developing, but looking beyond what the Stern Report has done in raising some of these issues. So, will you join me in uh, welcoming Saskia Sassen to the school again to talk about uh, global warming and the impact on the economy of cities? And I must say, Ricky, that I, and I think that is going to be happening tomorrow and tomorrow, but I had to become a student to deal with all of this new information, these new problematics. And I, I, I am one of those who think that we who never leave the academy, you know, since we're like 13, we're in the academy, that, that we never really grow up either. And I thought that never growing up would help me become a student again. But in terms of all the environmental stuff. But then I discovered that they are actually two very different issues. So I have still not grown up, and I am now a student of all these new subjects. Um, it is experimental, what I'm doing. And the starting point, two starting points. One starting point is when I talk about the rethinking of the political economy. It is a rethinking that has a big hole in the middle. So, I argue that we need to reconstitute the political economy of cities in terms of technology, all these new innovations and the innovations that we will have to engage in, politics, because change is a major feature, and practices, all kinds of practices. We think households, even the most conservative, you know, in orderly households, it's ultimately an anarchic state when it comes to the practices of people if you have as an objective sort of an environmentally sustainable lifestyle, city, whatever. Uh, there's a big hole if you come. Or whatever it is you try to name by that term, you come. Next term, a colleague, I think, or about to become a colleague at that team, produced a very important report, I'm sure many of you are aware of it. And he gives one kind of answer to that whole. And it is the business opportunities that global warming will produce. But, you know, if all the snow melts up north, is there a problem? Melts in northern Canada, then there are all kinds of new commercial opportunities that might emerge. He does more than that. I'm just being a bit scientific here. Ecological economics is a very complex discipline, and I won't be able to talk about that really tonight. But it offers an alternative version of the economy. 
that had to do with steady-state modern, where all the dynamics of growth, of distribution, etc., etc., somehow neutralize each other in terms of negative outcomes vis-à-vis the environment. That is truly a different way of thinking about it. There is actually an association of ecological economics that has existed for 20 years. They are all invisible, they are now becoming visible. They have to do extraordinary work to understand how, if you do A, you can make sure that all the other elements that are put in motion balance each other out. In very elementary language, and it doesn't have to be called picture, it's a burden of zero emissions. Zero emissions for a building, for, you know, a, a production process. Ah. Oh, okay. But what I said till now was heard, right? Yeah. Okay, yeah. Oh, that was really bad. <laughs> 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 uh, so, I want to keep that black hole throughout my presentation. I am not going to talk. But I want, with every subject that I address, for that black hole to be a presence. Because I think, ultimately, technology, politics, and practices, which is what I'm going to talk about, I'm not going to do that. There is something else. We have called that something else historically, at least in recent history, the economy. We might find other vocabularies to capture what constitutes the economy. But I'm certainly not ready to provide that. Though I am very good at inventing uh, new, new words. Partly that is because I grew up in five languages. As a consequence, I don't know one language well. I made mistakes in all. So I'm never inventing new terms. Some travel well and others don't. They die a young death. But I am not ready to deal with this black hole. And I do think that it is a major time. And I also do think that um, the kind of work that looks at the business opportunities is not enough. Could we be at the beginning of a whole new phase? Why should the kind of economy that we have lived with last forever? Markets, however, have been there. They are in private societies, there are some markets might be. It's not necessarily the other figurations of the economy. So I want to do four things. One is the drama of it, the drama of global warming. And cities are really sort of in the front line in many ways. Secondly, I believe what turns out to be one of the most significant producers of environmental damage, the genuinely destructive sector. Guess what it is? Buildings. Buildings and buildings. Then I want to look at what we know now of engineers, architects, planners, and sort of, you know, technological innovators, etc., have understood, have produced, have invented, um, that could make the building process itself the source of positive, environmentally sustainable practices, technology, so that the most destructive sector that we have, or at least almost the most destructive sector, uh, also becomes 
a sector that can maximize the utilities, the positive utilities from all of these innovations. And finally, and at that point I can assure you with great relief, I want to come back to politics and how cities fit into the political uh, challenge that is also associated with that. And I want to say that my co-author of the very long report that has much more data than I'm going to show you and that will be available on the website of Urban Age, Open Access, is Thorsten uh, Schroeder, who is an architect who both practices and does research. And uh, for a lot of the sort of very, very specialized building technologies, that is his work, and, uh, and he's right here. You don't have to stand up, it's okay. <laughs> but I want to, to emphasize that he was a crucial co-author. So let me start with the drug, flooding. The wide areas are high-density areas. I hope that those in the back can see this, but this is actually down here in London, Birmingham, Manchester. Now here is one meter of water, this is the current, this is today, one meter uh, increase in ocean level, water level. Six meters. Amazing. London actually looks rather well situated. It's not particularly affected. Here's New York, which of course many people want to see flooded. <laughs> so the white areas are the high density areas. Here is one meter, ooh, I, here is six meters, oof. Here is Shanghai today, with its 5,000 new buildings in seven years, is that it? Here is one meter, okay. Here is six meters. All those buildings are gone. Which all the millions of these days people might actually enjoy thinking of. And some architectural critics, too. But we don't want to be too cruel here. Here is my country, the Netherlands, which already exists underwater. <laughs> but here it is today. It has managed to, you know, high density and dry there. Um, here is one meter, it's gone. Six meters is hopeless. They, of course, are the ones who will be most prepared to deal with that. And they will not be there. I do worry about some other uh, places. And in Dallas University, for instance, with which I'm sort of associated, um, incredible work in water. Water management is a specialty of the country, you understand. Um, and they are certainly going to be uh, in a vanguard. So, the higher the challenge, the more the innovations will come out. And they are already doing extremely uh, well. Key subject, energy. The consumption of energy. So, here are a few figures. Many of you know these figures, but it's good to remember that a bit, no? So between 1970 and 2004, global greenhouse gas emissions have increased by 70%. That is actually an achievement. Now, as somebody who works on finance, I know that if I used the same years for finance, we would be talking a much higher rate of increase. But what it is that increases with finance is far less clear, I think, than in the case of global greenhouse gas. Here's world energy consumption projections. So we expect 
These years, I don't know if people can see the end. There is 2030, 62% increase between now and 2030. These are, I'm just trying to give you the drama. We don't need to get into the real details of it all. There are many different models that predict temperature increase. They all predict. And here we're talking about, there are like, you know, 17 different models plotted here. They all predict this incredible curve. Now the difference between the lowest, 1.8, and the high, it's actually a pretty high, pretty big difference. But the curve is there. And I do think that that is alarming. Um, now, we have here, this is sort of, um, to understand it, is the, the, the share in greenhouse gas emissions by different regions, and then also per capita production of emissions. When I say emissions, I mean something negative. I understand that it's a bit of a neutral word, emissions, but in this lingo it means negative. And here is a sense of population. So this is a bigger population than this population. So what stands out, of course, we already knew that, are two things. One is this vertical line, 25 plus per capita emissions by U.S. and Canada, mostly U.S. And then, these are the other ones that stand out, these very broad population sizes, huge population sizes, with the flatness of the per capita. As you know, one of the big debates now is India and China. President Bush, and even when he says it, it is true sometimes. And so, he's always talking about this colonized country. But the truth of the matter is that the per capita is, of course, incredibly low compared to, you know, the United States. So this is, again, just a sense of the distribution of the production of damage. All sectors and regions have the potential to contribute to emissions, but none reigns as clearly as buildings. I do think that that is interesting. Now, this is when you isolate that sector, if you put all the rest together, you know, but buildings really stand out. And that is why I think buildings, cities, urbanized environments, etc., they are sort of strategic zones where we need to focus a lot of effort. There is important stuff to be said about each one of these, but I'm going to confine myself to building. I do always find literally huge, because agriculture, which we might think of as being healthy and nice and green, is actually a significant contributor, more so than some of the other sectors. I don't know if anybody knows the work of David Harvey, but he has long argued that that, ur that rural areas are serious producers of bad, uh, bad emissions. Now, buildings. I want to focus on buildings a bit now. And I really must say that I like writing. These are my uh, images, you understand. An environmentally destructive force. I just love the weight of that word, destructive force. We need buildings. We enjoy building. So, we need to work on this. This is one critical 
area, and for urbanness, it also, of course, becomes a very important one. And here's a quick sort of, you know, the energy consumption of buildings depends on a whole variety of things, including the behavior of users. The building is not fully autonomous, independent from the people who inhabit it. I'm thinking of another image. The house is not innocent of the violence that happens inside it. So, you know, I think, I think that there is sort of an interesting problematic between the materiality of the building and the practices of the users and, you know, the inhabitants. Here is a common energy diagram. This is based, by the way, on the UK. I'm just privileging the UK because that's where we are. Uh, so, what you see, oh, I think that that up there, something was dropped there. That's on there, that, that 1%, can't be 1%, that is 30. So, anyhow, so domestic, you have this gray zone, domestic, 30%. Industry, 24, transport, 34, and I don't know what service it was exactly, but maybe it looks like 17, 14, okay. Now, 14, there we go. Buildings are not isolated, they're not recognized, they're not made visible. So we try buildings, domestic buildings, non-domestic buildings, because, of course, most sectors of the economy have buildings at one point or another. And then you see that buildings account for almost half of energy consumption. Again, we keep coming back to buildings. A lot of attention is gone to transport. A lot of attention has gone to air travel, and I feel personally implicated. I will not say that I just arrived this morning from a long trip, but it is the case. But anyhow, so I'm very happy, <laughs> no, I'm not happy, to see that buildings are actually a very significant factor. Factors. Few figures on buildings. A lot of it is going to be happening. So right now, these are various estimates from 1996, <clears throat> to 2050, 20 million <coughs> dwellings. This is not quite all buildings, you understand? I mean, the, the data are not always there uh, when you need them or want them. Uh, the 20 million dwellings will be refurbished, renovated, etc. 10 million new dwellings will be built. This is a lot of buildings. So, what we do with that building process is enormously Interesting item, and this is one of the themes that now begins to creep into my presentation. <coughs> and that is the smallness of some of these sources, but the fact that they are distributed, they're everywhere, everywhere. They're small, that it's not just the big thing, it's not like nuclear energy or nuclear plants or little things. So space heating takes the biggest share of total energy consumption in buildings. I like this one. Now, this is the UK. This is average energy consumption for service sector buildings. Space heating is red. Many have all kinds of other things. Space heating is the biggest. I also must say that the biggest of them all is government and education. No, government to me is particularly humorous, the government, yeah. And 
commercial offices on which we all like to sort of, you know, done with it, uh, they are actually doing better. They probably have better uh, double glazed windows, I don't know what. But clearly here, the, the main point is that of all the sources of energy consumption, in other words, water heating, lighting, cooling, etc., space heating is the biggest. Now, this is in this country. You know, if we look at another country, it would not. But this country, there are many other countries like this country. So this is, this is a big issue. Here I have two things that I want to point out. I can't, I couldn't help. There is no really very strong reason for me to have chosen this slide. Except for the word mitigation technologies. It's the kind of word that if I told my husband something about that, he would say, you can't be using those words. This is not my idea. But it could have been. This comes from the, um, from the, the panel, the, the International Panel on Climate Change, which is an international panel. And it's mitigation, for the Latin word, mitigare, it's like imbrication. These are words that my experience is that Brits, for instance, don't like. And what I see in that word is a kind of internationalism. You know, it's like I can see all these international, lots of scientists from, you know, Latin origin, because it is an unusual way of putting it. But there it is in this formal report. And what I like about the content, the substance of it, is that mitigation, again, is small changes. Small. Mitigare. It is not like a revolution. And in fact, the recommendations, these come straight out of the report. They're about small things. And it's a way of bringing it down. Because a lot, of course, of what is happening with building technology is incredibly high-tech, incredibly expensive, incredibly sort of Silicon Valley stuff. So here, I don't even need to read these. But these are currently available, and those, there gets just a bit more complex, the ones that are projected to be uh, commercially available before 2030. Second major key, how can the construction process itself become a source of positive practices, uh, good uh, technology implementation, etc.? This is a vast subject. And in the report that, that, uh, that Schroeder and I are preparing. It's not totally finished yet. Um, we have a vast amount of sort of different kinds of things. So I am just now picking. It's impossible to give you, you know, a full, a full vista. But here, one, a first thing is just innovation in building technologies, from elementary to complex. So I wanted to start with this, which is neither elementary nor complex. This is an urban thermogram. Um, and what it is capturing in, in the red, with the red, is something that we might call unnecessary heat emissions. I'm sure many of you have seen these type of thermograms. These unnecessary heat emissions might be because of air conditioning, or they might be because of heat loss when you're heating up a space. But it is sort of an interesting map. It's a very concrete map of types of intervention sites that need to be addressed. And it is, of course, all buildings. And one has the impression, in a way, that 
if you could eliminate all that red, so it looks so pretty, um, that you have made a major advance. So it sort of, again, focuses the effort. It's not all up there, high-tech. It sort of becomes very concrete, very specific. Now, here are some of these issues. So, this is a good building, of which there are very few right now. And that's a bad building, that line up there, right? Bad practice building. So, this is a building where, um, what is it? It, it takes uh, 240 kilowatts per square meter in terms of energy consumption. I can't remember what particular one. Now, here are small interventions. This is what I want to capture in this slide. So you put no no e is not no electronic right now it was e electronic no emission windows. That's an element, and you can reduce it to 104. You add no emission windows with internal insulation, plus you keep recovery system so that when you open a window or open a door, you don't suddenly get a blast of cold air or the opposite a blast of heat if you're cooling it down. These are all rather Elementary, you know, interventions. You can get it down to 55 per square meter. And then if you add triple low emission windows and high thermal insulation plus the heat recovery system, you can bring it down quite a bit. It might be that this is the last mile of the state that is one that really breaks the back of, you know, the effort. To me, it's an extraordinary graph. That it takes actually very little. The problem is that the only way it will make a difference if it is a distributed outcome. Everybody. The more I, I look at these kinds of things, the more I think of part of the effort as the equivalent of public infrastructures. And what I mean by that is, well, think of transit. Transit is a public infrastructure. It is more efficient to allow everybody to use it, whether you are a murderer, uh, or whatever. It doesn't matter. Everybody. You don't have to show citizenship. You don't have to show anything. You can use it. It cuts across everything. And one of the political implications for me of these small interventions, but that only will work, only will make a difference, if everybody does. There is a politics. There is a linking of ecology and distributed outcomes. Distributed outcomes we can also then escalate conceptually and think of as democracy, democratic. That doesn't mean liberal democracy, but you know, something more generic than that. So I do think that these small interventions, which will not get it down to zero, but they generate practices they generate projects that are distributed, that are everybody, and then become a kind of public infrastructure. You know, I see sort of a processor that I, I find very intriguing. Ah, this is definitely not my subject. But, how could I not? All these nice little pretty pictures in color. And a variety of insulation materials, from very, very complex to very elementary. Here's my favorite. Sheets. It turns out, as you will see, that sheets wool is a great insulator. And here in the British Isles, you have quite a few sheep, and uh, why not? So here is the opposite, very advanced 
and a very complicated name, extruded honeycomb, or whatever. And here's another one. This is not about the hands, by the way. It looks like it's about the hands. This is about this very ethereal. This is the most advanced insulating material that we have. It's used in aerospace, etc. Now, here's an interesting set of data. I would like you to look at the first three. So this is uh, wall insulation materials, darning concrete, we all know about that. Then we have solid brick, old-fashioned brick. And then we have this new type of brick, technological innovation. And here is the heat conductivity, that's a negative, you understand? In other words, it's a circulate there. Very high with concrete, 2.1. Solid brick, you know, very good, more than half it. Hollow brick demonstrated its technological advanced status, brings it down to 400. Here you see another version of it, the thickness needed using each material to achieve the same level of insulation. You need to build almost 16 meters thick walls with concrete. Concrete is, of course, mostly when you six meters thick with solid brick and three meters in hollow brick. So one would say, that is just great. Technology will work, great innovation. But then let's look at wood that's better than hollow brick. Bring it down to 130 and only 98 centimeters thick to achieve the same level of insulation as concrete. That's even better. I loved it. Maybe you all know this. That when I saw this, I fell in love with this. I thought this was fantastic. So straw. 55. Way, way, way down. 410 is um, the, the, the thickness. So 41 centimeters. And then in red, sheep's wool. <laughs> this is really good, I think. So sheep's wool. Bring it down to 37 meters of activity, that is very high insulation, in other words. And you need only 28 centimeters. I think that is very interesting. And then again, brings it down, which creates, we need both these extraordinary technologies, but we also have open to other resources. We just need to reposition them, if you want, in new types of organizing logic. Right? I can see the price of sheep zooming up. All kinds of people now urbanize buying sheep. Because, hey, that's, so anyhow, you get the point. Now this super, super exceptional, most advanced technology, better, better than sheep. But in surprisingly, little better. I mean, I don't know, I think that this is quite... Now, windows. Windows have been one of the most significant sort of uh, components of trying to create, uh, you know, zero emission buildings. And they, in fact, have, in the last 30 years, all these innovations reduced emissions by a factor of eight. That is rather significant. Um, oh, well, what I should say is that we have a vast number of slides that deal with all the stuff of windows. You know, the, the articulation between the outside and the inside that is not the wall. And there is, as many of you probably know, quite a bit of innovating. It's sort of something that, that everybody needs, 
every single building needs, and so it has, it's quite a market. Lighting technologies, another very big subject, a lot of innovating, a lot of commercially available products. I just want to focus on two thingies. Uh, LEDs, we all know about these, LEDs, get four times more light than incandescent bulbs. I think that's very significant, and they last 50 times as long. But beyond LEDs, we now have OLEDs, which are expected to last for up to 10,000 hours. And they are very small, as you can see, etc. So there is a lot of, this is in contrast with the sheep, very high-tech innovation. Um, and again, we have far more on this. I'm just beginning to move rather quickly through this. Innovations in shading technologies. Fixed or flexible. Um, here, one, one kind of sort of average finding, reduced energy consumption of cooling in office buildings by 66%. Now, these are rather ultimately low-tech uh, elements. These are not, you know, high-tech. And they make an enormous difference. Again, the sort of distributed character of a lot of these interventions. These are mobile, they look very pretty, they can be adjusted, etc., etc. Again, there is a lot to be said, I am not going to say that. Other little elements, innovations in daylight guidance technologies. Here, this is Japanese, by the way, you don't need to understand that. But basically, what the, the critical point here is that you are guiding sunlight to a place where there is no direct sunlight. So, and here it is a not very pretty setting, that this is underground and it's getting light, that is sunlight, through one of these pipes, if you want, that conducts sun. Here's a more complicated version for very, very huge uh, spaces with just, say, one wall with windows, etc. And here's another very not pretty sort of image. Again, all kinds of things like this. When you put it all together, you actually get a very significant possibility of transforming the use of energy. Um, photovoltaic technology. This is a big, big thing, a lot of talking about it, etc. Um, in fact, right now, economically competitive use of photovoltaic energy, California is the only one that has that situation in a significant way, etc. That's a that tells us two things. One is it can be done. The other one is that for some reason it's not getting done very much. When, when I read a datum like this, the only one, I immediately have problems, of course, as a social scientist, because for all we know, in some countries they're in fact using it a lot, but we just don't have the data. But this does come from the, from a sort of very reliable sources. I don't want to put too much feeling on that, but I do find it a very interesting data, even if it is not totally correct, even if there are other places where it is being used uh, in a competitive way. Now, the, the, one of the interesting sort of, if I could fill it curve, you know, two trends is that the cost for photovoltaic energy production will keep declining, while the cost of fossil energy will keep increasing. But, and this is a serious but, to replace fossil fuels with photovoltaic technologies, today's production capacity would have to be multiplied 
by a hundred. To me, that doesn't sound like a lot, given what I see in other sectors, where there is enormous uh, uh, sort of factor, factors of, you know, coefficients of increase. But evidently, this is a serious uh, obstacle. Politics. I've done all these technologies. I think it's very important that we sort of become students about this. But ultimately, I do confess that my heart and my mind lie with politics. And here, one of the things that I want to explore is the notion that I have, I have worked on this, of geographies of accountability. And to exit the building process as a site for these transformations, for these changes, and for politics, because what I was saying is that the building process can become a site for a certain type of practice that is a kind of politics. I want to exit that and to look at other geographies, including cities. And so this is the last part of the talk. When you look at the site of the, the geography of the structure, the geography that, that, that contains all the sites of places of the structure, it is planetary, it seems to be everywhere, it's huge. When you draw a second geography, which is the geography of major actors and agents in that destruction, you can discover very specific and narrow geography, not for everything. Households, as I said, are a truly anarchic map, because, you know, small business do. But once you move into certain types of economic sectors, like mining, forestry, which are profoundly dense. You do find the geographies of accountability that are really quite tight, and, and you can really get something out of that. So, here is a geography of accountability and a geography of destruction, environmental destruction, by the same expert. So, I don't know if people can see this. This, this is a mining firm, a global mining firm. Petroleum, aluminum, base metals, carbon steel materials, diamonds, coal, stainless steel materials. A lot of stuff. I mean, this is, of course, stainless steel is an elaboration of a mining product of iron ore. Have they, the, the dots are everywhere. A lot of them, clearly, in Australia, down there. Headquarters. Four. In terms of political action, whether that is negotiation, whether, it, whether that is public demonstrations, whatever, those are two very different geographies. The headquarters geography is tight. And that is what I mean by a geography of accountability. Rio Tinto, another very big mining industry. Uranium, aluminum, uh, industrial metals, copper and gold, diamonds, coal, iron. The size of the structure, given how mining is done today, it doesn't have to be that destructive. They're everywhere. The headquarters, too. Melbourne and London. Now, I don't have time to really elaborate the whole notion of the geography of accountability and how it can be used and what it could mean. I've written about that. But the point here is that there is a kind of political engagement that can happen that, that, you know, 
that is a very constant, that could be a very concentrated effort. It is not about reaching all the sites of destruction. And I do think that that becomes part of the project. Now, at a more general level, a network of global cities, these are clearly, this is a geography of accountability for all kinds of firms. Um, a small, a relatively small number of transnational corporations actually account for most of a certain type of investment that does engage the environment directly. These are, this is already a more complex geography of accountability. Cities, especially complex cities, particularly global cities, are critical sites in this geography of accountability. So in a way what I'm saying is that there is a politics close to the ground, and there is a politics that sort of, you know, operates at a, uh, at a far more concentrated level. Close to the ground I meant also distributed, that everything is part of it, all these little technologies that can make the building process itself a site for environmentally sustainable uh, ways of doing things. And then there is this other geography. And I do think that, in a way, cities are one space where these two come together. And since cities are also in the front line of a lot of the flooding, just to mention one variable, not to mention heating, you know, the, 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 the heating up of, of not just of water levels, but just of the temperature. So cities are a very significant space. Um, and this brings me to the, to the final part, which is systems that enable implementation. And here again, there are many. But I just want to look at cities. And I want to look at cities in two ways. One is cities as multi-scalar systems. If you have to implement a whole variety of technologies that are available right now, and you try to do that in a plantation in California, or a farm, or a sort of a very a small town, or a suburb, you can use only some of those technologies. And the synergies among different technologies will be minimal. But in a complex city, you can make a lot of these things work. We're trying to elaborate a graph that would capture how a particular process is sort of, you know, what happens if you have a multi-scalar system like a complex city versus a very elementary space. And we, we're not quite done with that, but I think that, that is what, what, uh, what I'm trying to get at. Systems are also very concentrated systems of communication. So demonstration effects, circulating of possibilities of information, uh, the kind of pressures that can, can uh, uh, you know, emerge that make household after household or neighborhood after neighborhood conduct themselves in a certain way, vis-a-vis -vis environmental issues, uh, all kinds of things like that. But I do think that the critical difference is this multi-scalar aspect, that you can actually operate at many different levels. You can intersect with a whole variety of circuits that might be planetary. You know, the, the famous image of the ecological footprint of cities, for instance. A city like London, we all know, it's a planetary event in terms of all it uses, needs. Can we put that on its hat and use it as a way of understanding how the city itself, that it is a multi-scalar system that captures processes with a scope 
that go well beyond the city itself. But there is another way, there is a second way, I think, in which the city also emerges and, and, um, uh, and in a totally different way, and in a way that you can juxtapose to the high-tech discourse, which is also critical. I mean, the new technology is very advanced technology, very fancy uh, uh, sort of building process, technologies, etc. What has to do with, um, with poor, poor buildings, low-cost buildings, not particularly attractive buildings, reusable uh, buildings, um, informal kinds of architectures, which, if you plop them down in a field, in a suburb, would not function, it would not be attractive. But in a city, it actually can. And here, I think of something that many of you are familiar with, which is the Palais de Tokyo in Paris, which was very low-cost, low-level technology refurbishment next to the beautiful sort of uh, uh, musée there, which on the inside it's a bit cheap, it's low, low cost, but it works, it works, and it creates a whole thing, a whole other thing. Now I'm to answer this note. Imagine that the city is both a site where the most complex technologies can come together, and also a site for a world of informalities, including very elementary forms of architecture, that can make them work. It doesn't have to be expensive. This, to me, is also political. It creates a possibility for a practice that exits some of the sort of high standards in terms of quality, of good architecture, the whole notion of spaces that work well. You can make it elementary, you can make it low cost, it can be temporary architecture. And it still can produce the excitement of the urban. So this is my final image, this moment of urbanity. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. We do have time for questions to pick up on the main theme images and thoughts. Yeah, you can hear me? And uh, we will have uh, about 10 15 minutes of uh, questions away. I'd like to go ahead to uh, ask you to identify yourself. Wait for a microphone to come. Don't swear at microphone. Tell us who you are and don't go on. Leave <laughs> to the point and not will cut you off. And, Please be precise in answering your question. Gentlemen, to the orange shirt, Yeah, thank you. I, you should be under the very good shape with a large uh, water rights, but uh, what about the uh, consideration of severe weather and do buildings have to justify? Should I ask my Let's have two questions. Over here. Yeah, my name is Karachar, I'm from something called the Future Cities Project. And Sakari, I would like to make a small proposition for you, I wonder, because you seem to have accepted both the, the logic of environmentalism and sustainability, which to me is uh, totally the wrong way to go about organizing society. 
I just wonder if you had picked up on the connection between the collapse of humanist ideas, i.e. prioritizing humanity, and designing politics and society and all that around human intentions and human desires and all that kind of thing, and the rise of environmentalism, which is, to put it mildly, is filled with, if you like, this attitude of self-loathing almost towards humanity. And I'll just give one example. If you look at the whole notion of the uh, carbon footprint, or, or sorry, the, uh, the ecological footprint, which is, if you measure it by any other species, you would say, brilliant. We're using so much resources, we're multiplying, we have such a great society. All we need to do now is actually lift up the people in Africa and Asia to, to the level that we have in, in Europe and America. Uh, or we say, no, it's absolutely loathsome. them disgusting and human beings as much parasites on the planet. Thank you. Um, let me start with the second point. I actually work on the distinction between ecology and environmentalism, and I consider myself ecological, but I think that distinction has not been totally, you know, mainstream, so I use environmentally sustainable because that is a little more common. But Throughout, well, part of the humanities and all well, that, that second part of the comment, but also the first part of the comment, I think throughout, I was trying to do a few things that go in the direction of bringing in the political, which is by emphasizing, by looking at these not just as technology, but as technology that demands certain practices. And that can be distributed, in other words, every household, every etc. That there is a kind of a kind of political that gets made. Second important point: the story of sheep, the story of straw, the story of boats. To exit again this notion that we need the most advanced technology to handle. There are other ways of doing it. Again, to me, besides the simplicity of that, there is a political element that is distributed. These are resources that are all over the world. Now, the field that, that, that we're dealing with is deeply political. I've been to a whole bunch of big conferences, and boy, they can get down to fix. And I know and I'm familiar with the issue that you're raising, which is to emphasize humanity. Uh, I think that, to me, I want to arrive at that point via the political. And remember that there is the black hole of all of that which we call economic, that I pretty much address a bit too much. And that means have to do with the ecological mode of things. I accept the disagreement. I don't want to start with Humanity. I have a lot of trouble with those families. And I know a lot of people around the world who, when we question and come with our humanity, they, they run away. So I want, I want practices, I want inventiveness, etc. That is how I'm looking at it. And again, I appreciate, I am familiar with your organization, I think I've actually spoken in your organization, and I, I like a lot of the stuff that you do. You know, I have to do this. I think these are, these are new kinds of information. We don't even have a vocabulary to capture it all. So I think that it is productive to have a disagreement. Now, uh, the first question, yes, of course, all kinds of stuff. I was running 
But I do think it is interesting that one of the laws, I mean, now that, that when, you, when you actually move into the space that gets red, it's not rather vast. But this London is so huge. Usually, a London is much better off than Shanghai, than the Netherlands, and then New York. I, I just wanted to point out that we think of London as surrounded by water, with a lot of water everywhere, and I do find that an interesting. Now, those are projections. Yeah, yeah. Time is changing. Storms are coming. It's not just the rise of the water. So, and that's just a little snapshot. Okay, gentlemen, go there with glasses. And then, let's have three very short points. One, two, and then three. Hello, uh, I'm Richard Nelson. I have a project called Solar. Solar is not work. And we use a uh, very simple insulation technology, if you might like that, and it's called liquid bubble insulation. Well, there's going to be some demonstrations of this uh, actually here in London uh, later in the year. Okay, next. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's also about ecology. And I was thinking that the black hole. Is, is, I think you should lean into the issue of ecological life support systems. Yeah. And, and let life sciences lead, uh, in terms of design. Okay, I want to talk a bit. If we reflect on the RPC too, and the amount of time we have to, uh, to check, particularly that's uh, processes and the behaviors, we're going to take think of five years, ten years at the most. Uh, how realistic do you think this is to address that? Uh, okay, then we'll go there. Professor David Rodolfo, I'm going to be talking about um, you may have traveled with other geophysical advisors with me at the time, the problem is not that it's not necessarily that in fact it's actually rather warm, but it's very cute. So my point is that with global warming, we have noticed that it actually, it actually helps us keep the heating, because uh, the requirement for heating in the number of countries actually increased drastically in the winter. So my point is that Instead of having a cost of the refurbishment of the houses or refurbishment of the buildings, surely global warming will have some net benefits to the cost of the building. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Alright, let me start with the last one. Yes, of course. And certainly in turn, makes a whole, a whole number of cases with all the advantages, economic advantages. There are no more warnings, including new routes, you know, from east to west, or everything that's sound, or whatever. And I think that, that in fact, is maybe one element in that black hole. I don't know that. I want to take it seriously rather than as a joke, as you said. But I also think that, you know, that we need to hint, you are generalizing. And I think that that generalization does not help. I think that we, we would be, we need to understand how these different things work together. That is what I would say. Yes, early Friday would be massive business opportunities. I'm not persuaded that that's enough to fill that black hole. In fact, I'm convinced that it is not enough. 
So what you see is a very partial little transformation from X to Y, and it's basically because it need a major factor, it will make a difference. But who knows what all else is part of that ecological or that ecology? When you bring in the larger ecology, you can make the text, the novel part of that um, Time, space, political space, etc. Big, big issues. Uh, I think we have more than five or ten years, but that really doesn't solve the issue, I would say. So here's my take. My take, and this comes from my examination of history and the temporalities of making change, making significant change. And if I simplify the matter, there seems to be two temporalities. The temporality of those with power, they go bombing out in six weeks. And then there are other temporalities, like the four years that have come since the Iraq was now that doesn't deal entirely with the environment, but that's a, that's a common trope, you know, I can, I can mention that in the future. So, my take is that to reverse that, that what now seems impossible. Actually, we are not that it is impossible. But I believe that this critical factor is the distributed factor. Is to make a lot of this stuff into public infrastructures that come across. Look, I see the stuff at that level, rather than just the question of the technology that we can invent, or, you know, there is something about complex social systems that needs to be put in place. And in the same way that it's a river, it's the obverse, it's then that when America goes and bombs Iraq and has dimensions in six weeks, you know, I'm really obverse of that. It looks impossible for us to, to do X. And say that it was so possible for the Americans to sort of take care of Iraq. Take care of me, take care of the information. And you know what happens when we sort of put some of these the understandings went on their head. Finally, um, I think that that mixed temporalities are one way of thinking about the political project. There are certain things that need to get done, we need to change certain issues. At that point, tipping points really come into the picture too. That you don't need for everybody to be persuaded. You need a critical mass to pass in many situations. Look at the mayor of London, the mayor of New York, etc. Suddenly, out of the blue, you know, before the national government, they are deciding that we need to do that. Rupert is a Republican, a billionaire, or whatever. Suddenly, they said, fuck. Those are interesting. And then there are dollar temporalities, and refuse temporalities, they're also important. They haven't been working for a long time. Ecological economists have really managed to figure out all kinds of complicated things. It's really extraordinary actually work that they've done. That work has been invisible. How long will it take before it actually, but then when it becomes visible, it will clarify all kinds of things. And they deal with natural systems and how they can see and how they learn. So when you get this more complicated picture, it, to me it looks like it's as hopeless. You know, that if you just take the standard view and say, you're yeah, powerful. The other thing that I think in the German technology, the big forestry firms, the big mining firms, they are also beginning to want to change certain things. Exxon Oil, except for everything, the most regretted one, all the oil companies, has decided X, Y, and Z, you know, what's going on, I don't know. 
But these are interesting changes. I have a question that many pieces need to come into play. It's not going to be one. It's not having a superpower, you know, opening it. But it might happen. But it will take everything in play eventually. And, you know, it's a challenge. It's a challenge. Now, your, your, um... Promotion. No, not my promotion. The, the, um, the ecology, right? Right, but but um, but, but I don't know the product is describing. I don't know whether it's a real product, but it doesn't matter. But uh, really, it doesn't matter actually. But I was thinking, well, I, I I don't know why I heard you say something about the ecological, and that is what I want. Um, but I do think that we need to begin to understand the distinction between environmental sustainability and ecology. Ecology hooks it up immediately with distributed outcomes, with quicker democracy issues, etc. Environmental sustainability is a different point of entry. So, anyhow, I, I just, I have, I'm hijacking your question that in the other like to say that. We've run out of the next question, and it's probably going to reflect on one of the issues that Perhaps here, as many of us have been discussing this today, we touched upon it in a very different way, which is truly global argument, which is, um, I mean, you talk about the geographies of destruction of the city. We all have in mind this map of the world, which is what the human footprint on it in large cities. One of the agendas, you could say, one of the ongoing political agendas is to deal with climate change and energy consumption, is to try and shrink that footprint. Um, the reality is, in fact, it's actually the opposite. It's happening in the world of the country. With that, maybe the one subject you've written about and you've talked about a lot in our group, which is the issue of density. Yeah. And it seems to me that in this discussion right now, you're beginning to take, bring up a new issue where the argument of greater compactness, um, which is clearly has environmental energy positive sides, also has strong um, social positivities attached to it. And I was wondering whether you could reflect a little bit more about that and what you said. Because you showed us a lot of micro solutions rather than big planning ideas. And you hardly touched on this. It was interesting. It was more about what, what happens at the informal level. And you reflect on that in a moment before we come to the other question. No, that's a very good point. I mean, First, let me say that there are all kinds of critical elements that I could, could not address. And secondly, I do think that large interventions uh, can arise at different sources. Some of them uh, can be truly uh, destructive in the sense that they escalate bad practices, escalate the use of technology that are not getting in any way, so that the large project is potentially very dangerous. I am not at all persuaded that we have found a way of making large projects, like large urban planning projects, work in the opposite direction. Now, what I don't know, this is a question, is whether implementing these other ways of doing it uh, is in radical tension with the format of the large-scale intervention. You don't know that. You know that one can think of an Olympic village built in terms of zero emission, you know, building, 
But then what makes the thing happen? All the little things. You know, I'm operating on two levels. One is these large political formations, and the other one is the very concrete practices that need to be also part of the vision. And so thinking of large urban design projects, I I'm afraid that that very easily falls into the kind of technology that we don't want. I think there is a different intention, you know, intellectual, of knowledge, of practice, and I would like to see on some of it, because I find it a very interesting issue, you know, intellectually and conceptually. It is the case that the way we're going to really, coming back to your point, the way we are really going to make a massive difference is that all, all in all different sectors, all of these consequences of little things, one, two, three, four, five, are the same thing. You know, by think of building public campus, it meant all kinds of little things coming together. And so, it's like one of the models, where if you build from top down, you inevitably fall in some other kinds of, uh, you know, like critical density, critical regionalism, eliminating unnecessary mobility. I love the story in the, that uh, England, I mean, the UK, imports 10,000 tons of fresh potato no, milk. From France and exports the same amount to France. That's an unnecessary mobility. At that point, I say I'm attracting it to a very refined palette in my new business. How about the fresh potatoes? There's not that much difference. 4,500 from Germany imported by the UK and the same amount of exported. The only winners there are the accountants, the insurers, and all the intermediaries. So, regional criticism. Regional, uh, a kind of regionalism is a kind of term. If one space of density that is not a typical urban dense space that can begin to resist, you know, but again, thinking of your life for interventions, those are critical regionalism and it's a whole set of practices, a whole set of micro factors. It, to me, that is why ecology and democracy, and I'm using the education market because the term is in my life. Connect interest. It's micro practices, and that's for me where there's quality. I hope, but that is in my own translate. It is a notion of making the political. And that's part of the black hole. The black hole is not just a it's a political. And I think that making the political is on the agenda no matter what. Liberal democracy is truly the opposite and that's me that I'm going out of the window of it, making the political. And I find thinking about the ecological challenge in these terms that I described in a way that is hurting the political. It is informal Do you think about what our buildings, that it's where we go back home, 
and buildings are the extension of human activity into the physical. And you concentrate about surprisingly today on the engineering of the physical, which is and if we say the physical the engineering of the physical is a response to human action, it gets us into our way with the object of your that hole in the middle, which is we have networks of human action which are very powerful. And we need to wait to think of ways of reconfiguring human action that displays power if we're to even begin to find solutions at the next year ago. Okay, well, so then we'll come down to the end. Well, the last contributor from the floor, I said that uh, you. You got the second last. <laughs> we're going to have a last one here. So previous at the end of the floor and uh, said that you, you, you dismay me too, that because whilst you were able to set up nominal scope for innovation and uh, initiatives and so on, in order to sharply reduce greenhouse uh, uh, gas emissions in the light of the uh, and the slides you showed, uh, there was some else for the city, but that needs to be done urgently. You nevertheless imply, but not state, that, that this is the route to go down and that sufficient change will be brought about by these means in sufficient time. And quite clearly, that is what the case is. Also, you went on to, uh, as it, it implied, that uh, the future they uh, can carry on as Mr. Stern has suggested enabling economic growth to be maintained at the expense of only 1% of GDP, which obviously doesn't take account of the displacement of hundreds of people. Here's my last point. No, it's right at the heart of the matter. It is, do you probably imagine that the urgency with which this issue must be addressed? Can we achieve other than by requiring people to contribute their share through the medium of contraction and convergence of the contraction? Okay, I don't think I'm going to stop you from asking. Listen, I thought I was so careful, but perhaps I was not sufficiently careful. Mentioning two things. One of them is a big black hole as a center. Which is critical, which I'm not ready to address because I think it's very critical. Number two, I said that I was focusing on the large little difference. Because I think of it as distributed. But distributed means something positive. It says that every household, every business, every transit system, every government building, every distributed. And that in their lives, Finally, I really, I said it very clearly, I don't think that this term has the answer to the question. I, I, that is why I, if you don't even like to economic, economic, it is very complex. There's a lot of knowledge that I was going to talk about that, but I really think it's impossible. We need, we need too much background in the subject. So I absolutely Things we need to go beyond. So I actually agree with a lot of what you said, not with everything. Governance requirement, just one part. It's not what you said again, right? That's I believe it's urgent, but I didn't talk in the fact, like, you know, 
an operatic Italian opera. We must, because... Well, you can that that's persuaded either with many audiences, I don't know. So, I think it is very serious stuff that we're doing. Absolutely. Anyway, I think it was human in the world with this stuff. You know, I, I didn't have to worry anything in my face. Forget it. They didn't want to become human, they didn't. So, but I also believe, not in generalization, I believe in many, many ways. And I do think that it's something political when you say distribution. Now, Michael, very great to love you, I know. You know, I was talking about, I was also unsettling technology. Technology understood in its narrow sense. And I talked about the sheep, and I talked about the straw, and the wood. That makes it a distributed practice, potentially, you know? Because straw and wood is there. So, little things that I also did, the little differences, if you take a little you can make a lot of difference, etc., etc. It is not practical economics, but it is that. That's the black hole. That's the next lecture. In a year, maybe. I don't know what I'm Can you There were two people there, yes. Okay, three, but, um, yeah. three. I may not answer them all. Okay. <laughs> what do you think of the concepts that go up with that, set out by Eric and my new economic explanation itself? And also, what did you set out by Oxfam last week that the rich world should be in and be in addition to those listening? Of the famous game of the Swahili women, you know, where he went to the ultimate stove. 
I was in the 70s that they had for it, and I was in the dinner that they had for it. And if you think, so then, that then went to make a difference. I want to situate that from some of the other things that I do here. In a more complex map, that is characterized by distributed sites and by multiple scales. So at one point, I might govern the country that deal with concentrated sites. But I don't want to create a holistic system because I don't believe in that. I think we're dealing with fuzzy logics, we're dealing with things that keep exiting systems, we're dealing with things that keep disordering, established boundaries, etc. So I think it is really a movable. You know, and you can't control it. That's why I think that government regulation can get only at certain issues, but it's not going to be a solution. I, I also, I mean, part of my story is the different subjects that get shaped, or subjectivity that get shaped through these practices. And they're going to be very diverse, and they're going to be partial elements of that larger picture. But it seems to me that, that talking is, that becomes very sort of abstract in general. So, the way I think about it, is that when I talk about today, it's much little things, with my black hole in the middle, elements of the geography of the country. And those are the building blocks for what eventually is going to be a more complex and elaborate system, especially once I build the black hole. But it is not easy to do this. And I'm taking it very seriously. Maybe I should want to do this stuff. <laughs> you know, maybe I should have waited for two or three years when I'm really ready to Yes, it's a matter of So, so I appreciate your comment. And, and the question of practice is finally allows those who lack power, allows those who do not have access to the ultimate technologies, also to be part of this project. So, so practices involve all kinds of people. Well, by the way, but you know, it also allows that. So, I, I like that way of thinking about this politically. Now, your question about asking. Uh, so, all of that is fine. Let's help the poor, let's, you know, but it is also problematic. We know that. The IMF also tried to help. Uh, and it managed to destroy 70 economies at least. It was a very violent violence. Really destroyed them. It's high risk. I think subjectivity and knowledge should be a huge component. And that brings me back to the large scale project. I think that we will need large scale projects, of course. But figuring out how to do that, you know, for me, it's a question. But maybe we are very advanced, by the way, because I am really ignorant about a lot of this stuff, so I don't know that. But I am worried about replicating ultimately all inequalities of power advantage. And this very elusive issue, which is whose claims are legitimate? Who has the power to render certain things? Imagine somebody trying to say, let's use sheep wool rather than only come extruded, whatever that other material is, extruded honeycomb. Yeah. Really? Who, who's going to do that today in certain settings? The extruded honeycomb uh, person, right? Not the sheep, they won't believe it. So, so you know, it's there. That would be another question here, isn't there? Um, uh, no, it's like choices and decision making. Yeah, the economic part of it. 
Thank you, Thank you. 